Chapter 2 of Harry D. or Making It Out. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Harry D. or Making It Out by Francis J. Finn. Chapter 2 In which Mrs. Rayner and my uncle have a passage at arms, a will is read, and I go to sleep in an unhappy frame of mind. Tower Hill Mansion, though a stately pile, was cold and forbidding. Keep out seemed to be the dominant note of its front. Nor did the interior belie the exterior. The furniture from hall to library, and from library to sleeping apartments, was severe, massive, and gloomy. I shivered as the surly driver rang the doorbell. I shivered as the surlier servant threw open the door, groaning on its hinges and you may be sure that I clung to my nurse's hand from the moment of our entering through the gloomy portals to the moment that we were conducted into the gloomy, heavy-curtained library, where, surrounded by long, gloomy shelves, filled with dark, ugly, musty, forbidding books, sat my old uncle, gloomiest among the gloomy. As I entered, my nurse gave unmistakable signs of agitation. Her face worked convulsively, and I fancied that she was stifling a rising sob. How her hand trembled in mine as we came face to face with my uncle. He raised his cold, heavily shaded eyes and glanced at me long and sternly. Yet more sternly did he stare at Mrs. Rayner. He had not changed in appearance since I last met him. His face, from the pointed chin to the wrinkled forehead, was yellow and somber, and his long, thin nose and thin, bloodless lips were as cold as of yore. His sunken eyes seemed to dwell in a region of perpetual frost, and his neglected hair, falling about his shoulders, appeared to be whitened not so much by the touches of old age, as by the polar atmosphere he carried about him. As I gazed at him in fear and trembling, I wondered whether it were possible for him to smile. Boy, he began, while I was still ruminating upon this remote possibility, who is that woman with you? Mrs. Rayner, Uncle James. She has my mother's place. Your mother's place, he repeated, and his voice was as the movement of an ancient door upon historical hinges. Ah, you're too old to be coddled, boy. Your nurse wasn't invited here. Woman, he added, and all the rusty, rheumatic hinges of his voice now came into full play. Go about your business. Previous to the first mention of my uncle's name to Mrs. Rayner, my father had thought her a woman whose passions were conquered and dead. Her agitation had undeceived him. And now that she stood face to face with this forbidding old man, she manifested that there were other smoldering fires in her bosom. For the flash of anger which shot from her eyes as my uncle addressed her filled me with awe. "'God knows!' she cried, still holding my hand. This is the last place upon the earth I would come to, Mr. James D. I know you, so does my husband, so did he rather, for he died penniless, a victim to your treachery. At Mrs. Rayner's first words, my uncle gave a perceptible start. As she went on, her voice gathering passion and volume with each word, his yellow face grew paler. There was that in the words of this woman which seemed to pierce his very soul and when my attendant had uttered these, the first words in which I had ever heard her make allusion to her former history, 
My uncle gave a gasp. Was it fear or anger? Rose from his chair, raised his skinny hand, and pointed with his skinny finger toward the door. Go away, woman. Go away. Leave this house at once, he snarled. I'll go too, uncle, if you please, I stammered forth. No, boy, you remain. I was terrified beyond measure. Catching my nurse's arms, I cried out, Mama, I'm going to stay with you. If you go, I go too. Come on, Harry, answered my nurse, resuming the gentle tones my ear knew so well. We'll leave this wretched house together. There's a curse hanging over it, and some day it will fall. And turning, we were leaving the library. Hold on. Stay one minute. How the old rheumatic hinges of his voice rasped as he called out to us in these words. Mrs. Rayner paused and faced him, her bosom heaving and her eyes still sparkling with anger. She stood like a deer at bay. Since you stick so close together, he went on, I'll have to give in for this time. Woman, you may stay. But I won't stay, returned Mrs. Rayner, her voice trembling. It is not enough, oh my God, that he should have brought ruin to the husband, but now he must insult the wife. I'll not stay either, I cried. Mama, take me away from this awful place. The old man lifted his hand to secure our attention. His face had changed again. He endeavored to look benevolent. There was a contraction of the facial muscles, which in itself had the appearance of an attack of paralysis, but which, under the circumstances, I took to be an attempt to smile. He might as well have tried to fly. Madam, he said, with a bow as stiff as a recently rinsed towel in midwinter. I ask your pardon. I was harsh. I see that you love that boy. For his sake, I ask you to stay. Mrs. Rayner hesitated. I assure you that tonight I have something to settle which is of great importance to the boy's future career, and I have made up my mind that Harry is to spend the night here and take his Christmas dinner with me tomorrow. I hope I am not mistaken, but I thought, even as my uncle spoke, that a little of the Christmas spirit of peace and goodwill shone in his cold, hard eye. In the light of after events, it is consoling for me to believe this much of that wretched, loveless man. After a short pause, Mrs. Rayner made answer, For Harry's sake I will stay. Very well, said my uncle calmly, though I thought that he was secretly pleased. Sit down, then. We complied with this abrupt bit of consideration, whereupon my uncle pulled a bell rope beside his desk. In there came presently the hideous, scowling servant who had admitted us into the house, in the matter of downright ugliness, he set my uncle in quite a favorable light. Gadget, rasped my uncle, returning that gentleman's scowl of inquiry with a scowl of impatience. Tell the cook to come here at once. Gadget gave a grunt, took his leave, and presently returned, accompanied by a portly woman who entered the room with her arms akimbo. Gadget, growled my uncle. A deep, guttural grunt from Cadget gave evidence that that giddy servant was all attention. Cadget, leave the room. 
There was no doubt about Cadgett's versatility and power in the way of grumbling and scowling now. He departed with a snarl, which brought into play his ugly yellow teeth. He backed his way out of the room, and after bestowing a look upon me, which forced me to hold my breath for fear, shut the door upon himself with a bang. No, continued my amiable relative. Women both, and you, boy, are you listening? The last three words he brought out with a burst, a sound as of unmusical cymbals brought clanging together by a furious hand. Yes, sir, I answered timidly, almost frightened out of my senses. I was clasping my nurse's hand, and even in my excess of terror, could not but notice that the strong tempest of passion was yet raging in her bosom. She was muttering to herself, inaudibly for the most part, although once or twice the words, Wretch, villain, scoundrel, and the like came hissing from between her set teeth. I felt that I was growing in fear of her, too. Are you listening, cook? said my uncle. I'm listening, sir. That's what I want. Now listen closely. He took up a paper from his desk. It was apparently yellowed with age. He held it for some time in his hands. Then, without further prelude, read aloud something to this effect. I, James D., being of sound mind, do hereby devise and bequeath all my money and all my possessions of what kind and value soever to my serving man, James Cadgett. The old man here raised his eyes and threw his gaze upon me. Your father and I, boy, had a quarrel once, he explained, and I made up my mind that he should not get one cent of my money. Cadgett struck me as the man who'd see to that. But blood is blood. Cadgett's not of my family, and you are. Besides, continued the old gentleman, in the same strain of simplicity and candor, I hate Cadgett. Look, continued my sensational uncle. He tore the paper into bits, and threw the pieces upon the gloomy, smoldering hearth-fire. Listen again. He selected another paper from his desk, and read in substance, I, James D., being of sound mind, do hereby devise and bequeath all my money and all my property, and all my possessions of what kind and value soever, to my nephew, Harry D. There, have you all heard? Is that all? asked Mrs. Rayner. Yes, snapped my uncle. The rest is for the lawyers. I do not speak on my own account, said Mrs. Rayner, for there are others to consider, Mr. James D. If I tell you who I am, will you promise to make some restitution to me for the wrongs you once inflicted upon my husband? We'll talk about that another time, woman. But look, you are in my husband's debt for fifty thousand dollars. I claim that money, and I will get it, too. Another time, woman. Now's the time, continued Mrs. Rayner in a solemn voice. Can you promise yourself a long life? You're an old man. My uncle looked at her quite mildly. Yes, he said slowly. I am an old man, an old man. Boy, he continued turning to me. 
I want to see you alone for a moment in my room. But business first. Women both, please sign this will as witnesses. The women both complied, whereupon my uncle turned to me with, You're a rich man now, boy. Then he pulled the bell, in response to which Kajit entered. Kajit, show this woman the boy's room, and see that the fire is in good order. Breakfast at seven, woman, dinner at one. Then, taking my hand, he conducted me up the broad stairway and into the room at the head of the stairs, leaving Mrs. Rayner in charge of Gadget. He drew a chair beside the hearth fire, and seating me in it, stood looking down on me not unkindly. Harry, he said at length, and I was awed by the softness of his voice. You're the picture of my mother. I looked up into his face. His eyes were dim, and there was a faint quivering about his lips. I was a little boy like you when she died, poor mother. If she had lived, I might have been different. As I continued to gaze at my uncle, I wondered how I could ever have called him an ugly old man. Now he looked quite like my father. Harry, I'm getting old. And if I die soon, you must get your papa to see to my accounts and to make it right with any people who have claims upon my money. Yes, Uncle James. I've been mean, Harry, and, and tomorrow's Christmas. You're an innocent child, won't you? Won't you pray for me tomorrow? Oh, Uncle, I cried, jumping to my feet and catching his hand. In an instant, my uncle had stooped down and kissed me lightly on the forehead. He straightened up at once and veiled his face in his hands. For a moment he was silent. Then, with an effort, he spoke. Breakfast at seven, boy. Dinner at one. Go to bed. And before I had recovered from my surprise at this abrupt change, he was seated at his desk, and with the old face set into its habitual frown, was writing as though I were a thousand miles away. I made my way into the long corridor, and perceiving light streaming from an open door at the further end, hastened toward it. Mrs. Rayner was awaiting me. Her agitation was extreme, and I could see that she had been weeping. Mrs. Rayner was communicative that night. In a voice broken with emotion, she related something of her past history. It was a tale of sorrow and wrong, a tale that involved a very dark chapter in my uncle's life. I do not feel at liberty, nor do I consider it pertinent to my narrative to enter into that sad story. As I have since learned, there was no word of exaggeration in her account, and as I listened, I was thrilled with horror and inflamed with indignation. Alas, the affecting scene with my uncle was driven from my memory, like a dim dream, and as I write, I ask God to forgive me for it. I allowed my feelings of hatred towards my uncle, full play. On that night, hallowed as it should have been by the sweetest sentiments of peace and love, I yielded to such passions as I humbly trust I shall never yield to again. It was late when I fell asleep, and I regret to say that I carried into a troubled dreamland my bitter thoughts against the brother of my father. End of chapter 2 Read by Mark Berube, Edmonton, Alberta, June 2021